Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and you're about to watch a conversation from Courageous Conversations 2021. However, before we get into that, I want to cordially invite you to Courageous Conversations 2022. The theme this year is the scholar and the skeptic. We're back in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church with seven amazing conversations. Conversations like, is there a God? Should we trust the Bible? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Does Christianity oppress women? Is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Should we be spiritual or religious? Is Christianity bad for our mental health? We want to give you a blueprint on how to have courageous conversations with gentleness and respect. Remember, we sold out last time, so make sure you register early and get your ticket now. If you can't join us in person, you have the virtual option as well. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. next conversation will be slavery in the Bible. Now, this is a crucial conversation because anytime I'm discussing Christianity, especially in our community, slavery comes up. How do we navigate it? What do we do with slave passages in the Bible? And I think we have the perfect panel to help us navigate those questions. The first would be Dr. K. Edwin Bryant, Dr. Cleotha Robertson, Quiniquia Day, and Dr. Lisa Bowens. This panel will be moderated by Brandon Cleaver. I hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the panel on slavery in the Bible. Uh, as you saw in the, or heard in the video, uh, Dr. Lisa Bowens was supposed to be here uh, for this panel. She was super excited and enthusiastic to be here, but at the last minute, she was unable to join us. But we're so thankful that at the drop of a dime, Dr. Jamal Hopkins uh, was able to join us. So thank you, uh, Dr. Jamal Hopkins, for joining this esteemed uh, panel of scholars here. Thank you. Now, one quick reminder, uh, if you haven't already, please sign up for Pigeonhole. Uh, you have a QR code in your, uh, in your booklets, as well as a link in the code CC21. So we'd love to see what questions you have when we get to that portion uh, of, the, uh, of this discussion. Now, slavery in the Bible is it's a complex issue because of the nature of its various uh, layers. You have the exegetical questions, people just trying to understand what are these references to slavery uh, in the Bible. You have moral questions. How could a good God allow such an institution, or some people even would even say, how could he seem to condone uh, such an institution? And then I think for the African Americans, there's, uh, for us, there's this unique, uh, 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 mix of experiential, existential, and, and cultural uh, elements because of antebellum and pre-Civil War slavery that sometimes affects how we also uh, read, those, uh, read those passages. So I think the question to start off, we'll start kind of broad and just ask, what does slavery look like in the Bible? Obviously, there's variances in the Old Testament between uh, Hebrew and non-Hebrew slaves, and even in the New Testament with some of Paul's rhetoric and even the book of Philemon. So for anyone who wants to start off, what, it, what does slavery look like in the Bible? Well, I'll start. Um, it looks different than what we have experienced in America. Um, 
So one of the things that's different is that we, there's this, this sort of restorative motion that goes with slavery. So that slavery is not an indefinite experience. There is a, there's an end point to slavery. And there's, of course, differences between Hebrews and, and foreign slaves, but there is a, a, an end. And also, at the end of slavery, at the end of your, your moment of service, you can anticipate some sort of uh, financial reward or some sort of, uh, some sort of gifting. It's actually in the book of, um, um, I think it's in Deuteronomy passage, where you have this sort of, you get this, these gifts, you get this restoration. So you leave slavery in, in, a, in a better position than you should have come into it. So that's quite different than what we experience in America. So I'll start there. Well, yeah, no, if I can um, just kind of echo, echo that, and it's, it's really good to be here. Um, slavery in the Bible, and you, you mentioned it, is very vast. Um, we're talking about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and the, and the different worlds, even within you know, that world, that, that context, uh, that those writings reflect, even the New Testament. So there's, there's this vast um, just kind of under, understanding or take. Um, there were uh, slaves that were you know, captors of war. Uh, there were those that uh, would even sell themselves into slavery to be able to, sell, uh, to pay off a debt. And so, you know, in that sense, slavery, you know, you saw an end to that, um, you know, maybe, you know, the notion of jubilees uh, for Israelites, but, but for those who were not, um, it, so, so it was vast. And, and the, the thing that I think is important is that slavery is very explicit. It's, it's, it's a, it, it's social, it's a, it's a cultural reality that you find within the Bible. You find within the Hebrew Bible text. You find within those worlds. You find it within the New Testament world. So it is, it is there. And, it, and it's nothing that we can really try to explain away as far as, you know, slavery in the Bible is not as bad as slavery in America. It, it, was, it, was, growth, it was gross. It was grotesque. And so it was there, uh, kind of a dehumanizing. And so just very vast and very broad. So the way that I like to deal with texts that, deal with slavery is just on a text-by-text -text basis and just really kind of handle it and take it from there. I would suspect a, perhaps a, a thoughtful way of looking at it uh, from a theological standpoint uh, would be looking at the action God takes towards Egypt and the action that God takes toward Egypt that in that action uh, he makes the Israelites uh, his people, so they transfer ownership uh, from one slave owner, Pharaoh, uh, to another. Uh, of course, throughout the text, and of course, my Hebrew scholar friends will be able to share more deeply than I, being New Testament, uh, but the naming convention of slave of God uh, is something that is taken hold of and finds itself in the literature that becomes a, a way of marking uh, those for which God has deemed for himself. So you have this constant conquest of both exile and post-exilic ways of imagining existence. And out of that, uh, as it leads into my specific area, you find in the argument I'll make at some point today uh, that Paul moves to a different space and moves from the context of being a slave of God to a slave of Messiah Jesus. So at the basis uh, God establishes enslavement for those whom he rescues out of Egypt, and that becomes the basis for which he redefines their identity. 
I think what's fascinating is that when you do look at the idea of slavery, um, clearly it's not the paradigm. I think the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 presents humanity as, as equals. And then you see the advent of sin there in Genesis 3, um, both individually and as well collectively. And then you see then the reality of slavery. But the, the brilliant engagement of God and his word is that we see built into the, the system of slavery limitations in terms of the, the process of indenture, uh, whereby after six or seven years, uh, somebody can uh, be released from, from slavery. And then the year of Jubilee, which really then deals with the cause of, of debt slavery, and that is inequities. And so then the land is then, in an ideal scenario, given back to the owners, uh, the people of God who are stewards. And then even the fascinating way in which God reveals himself via liberation, the God of liberation. And then even as a, as a man of war who liberates. And so it's a brilliant kind of um, engagement that God has in the culture and also in the context of revelation in terms of how he reveals himself. Thank you, Dr. Robinson. You know, one thing, I think when we consider our, oftentimes our, our modern discourses or even some objections to uh, the God of the Bible, uh, one thing that we often find intrinsic to these conversations is a conflation between uh, antebellum or pre-Civil War slavery and the slavery that's described uh, in the Bible. And we know one key aspect of antebellum slavery was its chattel uh, nature. So what, if any, traits do we find in common uh, with the, the slavery that's described in the Bible to uh, chattel or the or, uh, antebellum slavery? Uh, I would say the, the idea of ownership. Now, that's clear in the Old Testament, you know, that your master is owning you, and, that, and we can't get away from that. Um, but, the, but the difference is also that your master cannot abuse you. So with chattel slavery, there's this intrinsic part of, of abuse that goes on and on. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 21, um, if, you're, if the woman is, is sort of taken, um, and if the, I think the master gives, his, gives the woman to a, another, gives it to her, her son, his son, he can't then, um, that son then can't deny that woman just rights, sexual rights, food, housing. So there's this level of protection that you see there um, that's different than chattel. But the idea of ownership, which is we, we just can't get, a, get away from that. That is, that is clearly there in the Old Testament that your master has some level of ownership over you and your, your children. You know, I find it interesting when I when I look at um, the attitude of slavery in in the antebellum period. Uh, some of the research that I've I've done is that it's unique the way and Charles Colford talks about this, in that there was a time during the antebellum period that rabbinic writings, rabbinic literature, uh, Mishnaic uh, writings, uh, uh, Talmudic writings, 
um, their interpretations of the Genesis 9 tradition of how this notion of Jewish rabbinic writings are attempting to fill in the gaps. And some would suggest, even rabbinic scholars would suggest it's kind of an imaginative exegesis. Um, I call it I kind of maybe an ethnocentric exegesis or kind of racialized hermeneutic potentially. But the idea that Kofor raises that how this, during the antebellum period, these readings, these uh, interpretations to try to fill in the gaps, whether you find the curse of Ham and the curse of blackness and the kind of grotesque descriptions that the rabbinic uh, literature is, is putting forth, and I'll talk about what some of that literature says, the attitude that that tends to supersede, that tends to have more of an authoritative voice or more of an authoritative emphasis um, and, and held on to by those um, advocating for slavery, slaveocracy, um, as a way of validating uh, their attitudes. Um, and so I ask questions of whether or not, you know, these rabbinic writings, these rabbinic reinterpretations, if you will, um, are attempting to, um, um, well, you know, what are they really trying to do? Because, you know, I think the earlier panel talked about, you know, you talk about racism, that's more of a kind of a modern notion kind of. So I, I you know, I use the term ethno, uh, ethnocentrism in a sense that um, one privileging themselves, one privileging what they know, one privileging what they understand, but those that stand outside of that is kind of looked upon with kind of a suspicion. And so some of the work that I do is I, I'm looking at intertestamental writings and seeing how these writings, you know, writings from Pseudepigrapha, there's a book of Jubilees that comes out of the Dead Sea Scrolls or Qumran literature that talks about Ham's response to uh, the curse uh, Noah's curse, not of Ham, but of Ham's son. And so it's interesting that even the remaining writings, they, they don't look at, um, um, what, you know, they, kind of, they kind of suggest that, well, if the son is cursed, then that means, so if the grandson is cursed, that means the son's cursed. And so they kind of run away with that. And it's even interesting, because I was looking at some, um, some of the Qumran writings even today, there was a modern a fragment that was found um, back in 2013. Some Qumran scholars even suggest today they still promote that kind of notion of a hemetic curse, which is amazing. Uh, but, but the attitudes that's interesting, the Kofor's raised um, with regard to the authority that's given to these rabbinic writings over and against the biblical text, that's, it's still stunning. And I think that's a story that needs to really be told. Um, I don't want to take up too much time, but uh, in, a, in a text, Mark Knowles' Civil War as a Theological Crisis, he talks about a, a rabbi, a Rabbi Rafal, who in New York was going around uh, the North and the South advocating for the, the, um, the, 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 uh, the legitimacy of slavery and the benign uh, subjectivity of black people because of the uh, rabbinic interpretations of the Genesis 9 tradition. And it's really stunning. Um, but these kinds of interpretations and these kinds of literature was used uh, during the antebellum period to promote and push slavery and to kind of reinterpret uh, the Genesis 9 tradition with the Genesis 4 tradition. It's, fa it's fascinating how the color scheme that most of us grow up with is black-white mm -hmm. and white is good and, and black is bad. Yeah. Whereas if you look at the color scheme of the Bible, it's really, it's white, it's white red, where evil is, 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 is connected with sins being scarlet. And so 
what slavery and, and the messages or the improper exegesis of some of the texts um, has to make blackness bad. And when they do that, then um, when blackness is viewed as bad, then it allows then for the, the pathological mistreatment of people of color. And my wife likes to say it like this. She says, maybe our interpretations of the text say more about us and where we want to go than what the texts actually say. And so it's almost as if, okay, this is where I want to go. And so this is what I have to make the text say. And then we kind of run with that faulty interpretation. Yeah, I, th I think it's uh, useful uh, to think through uh, the correlations between both antebellum slavery and how slavery looked in the context of the ancient world. Uh, of course, my uh, European American counterparts would argue that classical Athens and Greece hold the best context for which to understand slavery in the ancient world. However, I would argue uh, to say that Rome provides probably the better ideal context in that uh, it allows us to see the pure domination of the institution of slavery and then as a result, we're able to follow that and then be able to extract what the meaning is for us now. Con consider this perhaps for a moment, that the context of slavery and when you tie perhaps the ancient world to the antebellum South, uh, of course you have to be very careful because there are only five unique true uh, slave societies. Of course, uh, you have Brazil before 19, uh, 1830 and of course you have uh, Haiti or the Caribbean, you have classical Athens, Rome, and of course, uh, the antebellum South. It's important that even though you see the same type of violent behavior, that while there, there are correlations, but I think it's important to understand the basis for which those things come. Now they will say that there is no direct correlation between how slavery is constructed in the ancient world and actually how it shows up in antebellum South, but I would argue otherwise, and this is why. If you look at Ulpian in the digest, uh, what Ulpian argues is that you have at the base point of the definition for slavery uh, comes from the context of it being a literal death. Consider this, that when the general was on the battlefield and when they conquered as Rome did beginning in 2 BC and they began to conquer everything, when someone was left on the battlefield and perhaps the general chose not to kill them, they became what the Latin word calls is the servi. The servi is where we get our word from servile or servitude. In that moment, what Ulpian argues is that at that stage, that person, that individual, ceased to be an individual because they have experienced a literal death. If you follow Ulpian's argument in the Digest, 12th book there, you'll find this, is that Alpian argues in, in the context that slaves are left in what we would call a suspended state of death. A suspended state of death means that they neither have life or death, and more importantly, that the master, the dominus, has the ability to not just inflict violence, but also to choose life or death. It goes beyond just saying they're not property. It goes to saying that they're in a suspended state of life. So when you follow that, from that understanding in the ancient world to antebellum south, then it becomes clear that 
the way in which you see the violence being dominated in Antebellum South is in the same way you see it in the ancient world. But I would say this, is that what Paul argues, and I hope that we'll get to this, is that slave and the way it dominated should not in any way be the basis point for how we approach the text. That there is a way out of it, and the New Testament shows us that. And I hope we get to it soon. Can, can I just add a, a point to this? The biggest argument we have against the slavery that we have experienced in African, as an African American here in, in, this, in this United States is Genesis chapter 1, when it says that we are created in the image of God. That right there, if, if we would just have our seminary professors and our preachers just stop right there and just take, just take a moment to say, this means that we are all image bearers of God. So that even if you are born into some low estate, as some would argue, especially in the Old Testament, that does not mean that you're less valuable. You're not two-thirds, whatever, human when it comes to voting or something. So you don't lose value when you're created by God and in his image. And that is one of the things that comes across in the United States is that there's this worthlessness, this, this loss of value. You're always trying to be more human. No, you're human already. Your humanity comes from God, and Genesis 1 sets that in order automatically. And, and in the larger context of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there are other older creation accounts. And in those creation accounts, there's a hierarchy. And what, when we say that humanity is created in the image of God, it's also saying that the kings are not up here and the commoners are down here. So it's a democratization of humanity that everybody, rank and file, no matter whatever social station that you're born into, are, are image bearers of God. So that uh, it's arguing against those worldviews that want to put somebody on top and somebody on bottom. Yes, thank you. Uh, earlier, Dr. Brian a couple of times mentioned Paul, and we know that Paul is one character of the Bible that seems to not be able to get away from controversy. And with uh, slavery in the Bible, uh, it's no different. Uh, some people would, uh, would ask, why didn't Paul uh, encourage rebellion of slavery? What would you have to say about that? Why didn't Paul explicitly encourage the rebellion of slavery? You know, I want to I want to say something about uh, about biblical narratives and the way that we read the Bible. And I, I don't want I'll deal with Paul after y'all deal with Paul first. <laughs> but but the way that you know when the slave um, when there's presence when slavery is present within the biblical narratives, and, and I often tell um, my students that we read biblical narratives. First of all, I think we should read them as documenting historical accounts or documenting accounts. And it's important that we might be get angry, we might get upset, we might, you know, all kinds of things about, about, about these historical accounts, but, but biblical narratives are biblical narratives. They're documenting, chronicling historical accounts. Almost like if you were in a jacked up situation, we can historically document that account. We are not necessarily saying that God is condoning your jacked up situation. That's just life, and you, know, you talk about you know, Genesis you know, three, there was a world and reality in the way Things should look before the fall, and there was things that looked after the fall, the, the manifestations of the fall. Uh, that's when we begin to see slavery. So just to kind of set that context of how we read the biblical text, how we read biblical narratives, 
they're chronicling historical accounts, and then I think we can do other kinds of interpretive things, but I think that may be a ground level of how to first start with them. Um, so y'all you know, get to Paul. And narratives, narratives get abused because they're, they're really descriptive of what's happening, but it's not prescribing what's supposed to be normative. Right, right. So if there's some miracle in the text, in New Testament text, that's not then saying that if you name it and claim it as people of God, then you have that right and privilege. No. Like handling snakes. It's just describing what actually happens, and it's not prescribing how God uh, normatively acts for every child of God. You know, I think when it comes to Paul, I mean, I'm not New Testament, but I, I'll say a few things on this. When it comes to Paul and the slaves obey your masters, and we have, to, we have to also remember who's teaching this, right? The, you know, the, the, the slave masters are teaching this and how it's coming across. But Paul has something also, also interesting to say that, you know, the masters need to remember that you also have a master. Right, and so there's this sort of this idea of, and so Paul actually does something that happens in the Old Testament, which is Jesus, I mean, God reminds us that we are to uh, remember that we were once slaves. That's what guides us in, in Exodus. He tells the Israelites, you remember you were once slaves. And so the idea is that you were slaves, so you treat others, um, you know, you restore them, you, the slave comes to your area, you, 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 um, you don't send them back, you don't do those sorts of things. So Paul says, Listen, you, you, there's no favoritism with God. And I think that when we, ha we talk about Paul and the passages are very controversial, we have to also remember who's communicating it because you know people have their own agendas. And the agenda is to oppress the slave and have him think there's no hope, have her think there's no hope at all. But we cannot get away from the fact that the gospel changes lives. And even if you're hearing something oppressive, that you're, you're, you're going to be like, wait a minute. I, get, I feel in my heart that God is saying something different. You, the, we can't act like the Holy Spirit wasn't still present with the slaves and saying, wait a minute, that something ain't right. You know, something, something ain't right. The, the master's saying this, something's, there's more to the text. And there, there were slaves who didn't just have the slave Bible, but there were slaves who got a hold of the Bible. And so they, they understood that there's more to this. And so I think when it comes to Paul, there, there's, you have to think about who is saying it and also remember that Paul said, okay, there's no, when, when it comes to eternity, there's, there's, there's no difference there. Yeah, I guess I would say, um, and I'll take a stab and go straight at Paul, uh, and I would say that Paul indeed uh, does resist the institution of slavery. Uh, I think most people misread Paul in that they have followed without redacting or correcting uh, Martin Luther's mistranslation of the word baruf, which means vocation or calling. As a result of it, there's a misunderstanding, misappropriation of what the word calling means. As a result, you think in the reading, Paul is saying, remain as you are. But indeed, no, that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is quite more radical than that. Uh, what Paul is saying, do not remain where you are. Resist sin's domination over you because sin is the ultimate slave master mm -hmm. and as a result contested. Uh, I think another way that allows us not to be able to read Paul the correct way is that we don't take a thoroughgoing assessment of the language as well as the genre of the writing. Uh, take for instance Romans chapter 2 and 3. Most New Testament scholars will kind of casually interpret that passage at a very high level because if 
most times don't want to deal with the deep exegetical thoughts that are hard to explain. Most times they're difficult to explain because of how they're approaching the text. Most have read Paul as being anti-Semitic, and Paul indeed is not, and they take Romans 2 to be that, and it's not the case. If you go back and look at the language, Paul is being interpreted through the eyes of Augustine as well as through the eyes of Martin Luther, who write after Paul. So you have to give credence to Paul's original context. The original context is the Roman Empire. As a result, you have to go back then and ask a critical question. When Paul begins looking at Romans 2 and unpacking this assault against these, and I would argue, Jewish Christian teacher and this Gentile convert who rise up in his Roman context and they're arguing with themselves about who has right or who has priority. In essence, what Paul is arguing in chapter 2, and stay with me, trust me, I'm going somewhere. What Paul argues is that the argument in Romans 2 is not about an anti-Semitic framing of a context. It's much deeper, and it's this. is that Paul's arguing in Romans 2 and 3 collectively that when God approaches the Gentile, he creates a space for them to be in Christ without having to go through the context of circumcision. Here's my final point. The whole context of it says this, is that Paul is after how identity is constructed. If Paul can implode, and that's what he does, if he can implode how identity is constructed, then he can also implode the way in which slavery exists in the ancient world. But it takes a rereading of the text, and to do that, you've got to approach it by genre, not necessarily through the eyes of Martin Luther or Augustine, because Paul's writing, and he's following an ancient literary style called the diatribe. And if you look at that, it's a way of teaching. You'll find that Paul is setting himself up, that by the time he gets to Romans chapter 6, he launches an all-out assault that says, do not let them dominate you the way you are. Stand up, rise, and do something. And I think one of the major things, again, when we're dealing with slavery in the New Testament, it is, is it doesn't look like the chattel slavery of the United States. It's not the kind of, by and large, the large plantations of, of workers. And you can somewhat get a, a, a nuance of that just by the household codes, where slaves are mentioned in the context of duties with, with husbands, wives, and, and children. And so I think uh, that's a major, a major point that needs to be made. And then I, uh, and Dr. Hopkins and I were talking earlier about just the role of the book of Philemon, which I think also in the book, Paul is arguing for uh, the abolition of what I would suggest a runaway slave, and there's a majority view on that and, and a minority view. And if, that, if that's the case then, I think if we look at the larger witness of Paul, I think he tries to deal with some of the, the potential harm that slave owners can inflict against uh, slaves, but also I think the book of Philemon is a major book that points toward ultimately uh, the abolition of that. And again, uh, a shout out to Dr. Easton McCauley in his book, Reading While Black, has an excellent, excellent section on that. Thank you. Now, the, the previous question 
dealt more with the purview of the enslaved individual? Why didn't they or why didn't Paul uh, encourage for them to rebel against slavery? This question, I want to focus more on Paul's attitude maybe towards other uh, Christians or believers or, or, or non-enslaved individuals. So why didn't Paul advocate for the abolition of slavery? Well, I'll take a stand. <laughs> um, Fred Danker, uh, in the Greek dictionary that most of us who study New Testament you know, reference a lot, um, translates Paul's vocation as tent maker. But if you go to Little Scott, or Little Scott, you'll find that it's not necessarily tent maker. It's stage prop builder. Okay, so what context would that have in the Roman world? The place where stages and props were used were the mime. The mime is when they had daily presentations by actors that gave, and here's the point, a bird's eye view of the domination and consciousness of the slave. Paul knew he could not get rid of the institution. It was woven into the fabric of society. There was no way Paul could even advocate or push someone to get rid of the institution. It wasn't possible. I'll tell you why. That the legal records said that they only could manumit 100 slaves at death. Well, when you have a slave society, it requires demographically at least have 30% of the population that are slaves. Well, as a result of that, that means that if they're trying to preserve the institution of slavery, that means Paul clearly understands he can't get rid of it. But what he does know he can do is alter it. And that's what he seeks to do. The word for slavery, in particular, the master's complete domination and to, to bring about literal death for the slave is dominium. What Paul looks to do is implode dominium ideology. As a result, what Paul's attempting to do is tell them, listen, and in fact, perhaps an uh, Italian philosopher by the name of Giorgio Gambin in his book, The Church and the Kingdom, perhaps says it best. He says, we should be sojourners passing through without being able to access the fringe benefits of privilege. So what Paul advocates simply to what Georgia Gombin leads to is this. While they went through the institution of slavery, the call to action was to implode it from the inside out. Well, I'm going to try to stop uh, for a moment and pause parenthetically and be a preacher because I'm that too. That I imagine that what Paul is saying to us today is that you might not be able to change the overall structure systemically of how things are, but you can blow it up from the inside out. And that's what Paul does in the book of Romans. He sets the charges so that as you go through this world, as you experience power and domination in the ways in which people look to impose identity upon you, Paul says, no, you can't get rid of it. It's here to stay. But what you can do is implode it, blow it up from the inside out. I, I would... I I would like to add that um, I'm, I'm not as nice. <laughs> you know, I don't, because I think the Bible, the Bible has moments where it gets messy. 
where we want people to speak about things and they're not speaking. And if we sort of look at today, we have people who are in a place of privilege and who do not forcibly speak on areas that they could forcibly speak on. Now, that being said, I can accept what I have from Paul is sufficient for me to know that Paul does not agree with slavery as a, as a practice. I can accept that what I have there is sufficient for me. However, I do think that, you know, he, he, he could have done more. I, I wish he had done more. I mean, just like I wish Aaron hadn't acted goofy and, you know, and decided to make a, a you know, a, a, a calf with gold. Just like I, I wish that Miriam wasn't, we don't just have the account of Miriam getting leprosy or, you know, and, and nothing happening to Aaron when they were bell. So I wish the Bible would just give us these clear moments, but it doesn't. And I'm not afraid to say that it doesn't. And I'm not afraid to say that that, that bothers me. However, I am I think that Paul gives us enough to tell us that it's not right. And I think that the issue at hand is that it has been misused, as a lot of the Bible has been, to keep black people from recognizing that they are truly kings and queens in this land. Yeah, I, I would just come back to say one thing, is that the language is what will reveal it. That if these translators of the Bible would just go ahead and say what the words mean, it gets at the heart of what's at stake. That if you look in Romans, and you look particularly in Romans 6, when you see Paul unpacking the argument about slavery, what you find is that Paul forcefully goes after the deconstruction of slavery. This so-called Jewish Christian teacher, he is making fun of Paul, mocking him in that. He says, how can you say, and you might know it like this, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? What the Jewish Christian teacher was attempting to do was to mock Paul. But what he didn't understand was Paul was setting him up for a massive argument. Because what Paul was helping to understand was this, that whenever someone has been in complete literal death, suspended state of death, to participate in Messiah Jesus through the process of dying and rising with Christ, the old man, perhaps the old man, if you had time to research it, you'll find, that the old man is the old slave. In the Roman world, the old slave doesn't have any power. He has no ability for profit. He can't bring prosperity, so he's not useful. So what Paul says, get rid of the old man, and the only way to do that, you got to share a grave with Christ. So perhaps let me offer this. The way in which we look at contesting slavery, and slavery exists in many forms, particularly today, is that we have to be willing to share a grave with Christ. A lot of us want to change the institutions around us, but we don't want to die to do it. We want to change what's happening in the world, but we don't want to share in that rebirth. We don't want to let go of how we've been dominated. And perhaps the German word have a debauchschaft, an awakening, that leads us to say and look around and say, I'm being dominated and misused. Paul does it. He does it explicitly. What's interesting is to even see how then some of the language of slavery is used in the New Testament as devotion for Christ, where we're called, and, and that word doulos and douloi, to call it servant, really, I think, does a disservice to it. We're, we're slaves of Christ. And then how God, uh, in his word, contextually takes that, that shortcoming of humanity and then uses it as a means of revelation for himself. And so it's amazing how, again, uh, the awesome nature of scripture, whereby even the shortcomings 
of our human experience, both individually and collectively, God takes those and uses them for, for his glory. You know, and I think in this, in, in addition to what, what you're saying, um, and I agree, I, I think there's a, this subtle uh, uh, abolition uh, approach that Paul is taking. I mean, I mean you look at uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, um, you know, where he ends, where uh, in, in the passage where you, you're, you were bought with a price, but he says that, I mean, he, and he makes a, he makes, I think he makes it clear that, um, you know, if you, if, if you were not a slave, um, but you were in bondage, and this notion of um, this idea of what if you are free, but you don't know Christ, um, how would you compare that to if you uh, were a slave and you do know Christ? And this kind of turning this notion, this social cultural idea, this, this slave ideology up on its head and, and suggests, and you're know, using the metaphors, you know, uh, I'm a slave of Christ, um, and that, uh, you know, I mean, when you think about it, and it may not kind of be a co-equal, but many of us are slaves to our jobs. Many of us are slaves to certain relationships. Um, mercy. And it, if it, <laughs> it's, it's, I think Paul is attempting to turn things upside down. Um, this kind of um, radical love or this kind of radical, um, um, you, know, you know, this idea, you know, and I think you even find this kind of metaphorical language even uh, with Jesus in the parables when he talks about um, the slave and the, the loyalty of slaves um, to their, you know, the wicked servant. Uh, but, but, but almost kind of a metaphor of, you know, this is the way that we need to have loyalty to God. And, and, and I think there's this kind of this theological um, kind of turning this or tipping this notion of... Uh, Yes, we can we can identify slavery as a social system, but there's a there's a greater understanding, and we have a theological and a spiritual idea that God is uh, God is really in charge, and we're just here, we're just passing by, we're sojourners, um, but you know uh, there's a you know this is a temporary state, but there's an eternal state, and I think that's what Paul is trying to get at with dealing with this idea of a kind of broken, um, ugly social system of slavery. Thank you, Dr. Hopkins. What's up, everyone? Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at Jew3project.org. Uh, we have a little bit less than six minutes to go before we get to your, your questions. Uh, I do have two quick questions that I want to get to because I think that both of them are really important. Uh, the first here is that, you know, one of the richest, most underappreciated, underread, uh, aspects of North American literature are the narratives of enslaved Africans and African Americans. And in those narratives, we, we really get a sense of who they are, what they went through, their, the, the strength of their faith, and so many other things. And another, another aspect of those narratives is that they talk about the, the preachers that would come and, 
and uh, give these pervert, pervert these uh, Bible verses or, or other things uh, associated with the Bible. So one thing that I'd like to ask you is how do enslaved Africans and African-Americans interpret slave passages uh, in the Bible? And oftentimes, again, we see those talked about in the narratives. So how did enslaved Africans and African-Americans interpret slave passages in the Bible? Well, there are several ways, but I'll, I'll do maybe two of them. So there's, there's one way of, of just rebelling. Just, you know, they, they were like, they just outright dismiss the passages. They're, they're just total, total ignoring it. And then you have the other way of really seeing, it's, it's really, I think our, our psychologists and our social work folks will really appreciate this. It's sort of just really buying into the rhetoric of the master. And because God is saying this, and you don't want to disappoint God, then okay, um, to rebel against the master is to rebel against God. That's, a, that's another way of sort of looking at it. It's the idea that, so I, I sort of have to accept this state. Those are two different trajectories where I'm gonna just outright rebel and dismiss the scripture, and it's, which is, that's not a good thing to do. And, and then the other thing is just, okay, well, my, my master is my master, and, and I don't want to disappoint God. That's, that's, I think that's, that shows the deepness of just being brainwashed, where you feel like your level of suffering is that something God would want. And I think we can't get, a, we have to talk about this with slavery, that the level of suffering that, that they went through, and to equate that with God is, you just can't have a relationship, I think, that is, that's loving when you think your God is going to just beat you and allow that to, you allow to suffer. Yeah. What's fascinating is that the Exodus motif is littered all through scripture. You find it in the reutilizing the Old Testament, and then even in the coming of Jesus, um, John chapter one, verses one through 18, the coming of, of Christ, you have that Exodus kabod imagery. And for African slaves reading the scriptures, they saw them, they looked at the Exodus motifs, and they saw that if God delivered Israel, he could also deliver us. And when you read, Lisa Bowens has it in her book, um, the dissertation of Dr. Cheryl Sanders at, at Howard, also just show that that's how then the uh, slaves look at the Bible. They look at it from their vantage point and their social location. And I think because of their social location, they're able to see a, a width and a broadness of the text that usually sometimes those on top and those on privilege just can't see. You know, and I think that speaks to the methodology. I mean, Sirik Lincoln talks about the theological sophistication that those enslaved had, um, where, you know, the question is, is how can those who are enslaved by a Christianity or a brand of Christianity, a bad brand of Christianity, is used to enslave them? And so the theological sophistication is that they had the ability to read the Kind of a kind of a broad literary canonical, if you would, if you will, um, perspective as opposed to a kind of a you know snippet, a kind of a deconstructive snippet that advocates for a particular position. And so I think that was the uniqueness, or that was, and maybe even the exposure of of, of those that were um, um, privy to this kind of the monothe monotheistic um, you know religion, whether it be Islam or Christianity or you know, that came over um, during the slave, uh, the transatlantic slave trade. So I think there was, a, there was a familiarity with the story, with the narrative, but I think they were able to read broadly and kind of 
you know, not to use anachronism, but a kind of a canonical or broad literary approach, um, um, you know, which was very different, um, um, which is, you know, fortunately, that's kind of what we're dealing with today. Yeah, I align with um, the whole Exodus motif. I think you get it right. Uh, that that's what they use. They interpret their story in the story of the Bible uh, and find those stories as being a sense of hope. Uh, but then also to build on the panel prior to us, uh, that we cannot forget the intelligence of our people uh, to think that they did not have the power to um, unravel a propagandistic type of way of using the Bible to enforce a particular way of being and acting and becoming and belonging. I think we do ourselves a discredit to not think that our ancestors did not have the intelligence to know when they were being hoodwinked. <laughs> I think there's also something to be said by the fact of, and of course I oftentimes live in the ancient world being a New Testament scholar, is that there's a non-Christian text uh, contemporary with Paul that I think kind of underscores this whole moment. It's real quick as this, the life of Aesop. Are you familiar with that? The life of Aesop basically is a slave who is extremely intelligent. He defies all the different types of social conventions. He's smarter than his master. His master's wife desires him sexually more than the master. Everyone in the house looks up to him. Aesop has, if you will, had a transvaluation of values. He turns the system on his head. I believe that's what happens on the plantations in the South. Not just the preacher, but the whole plantation, those who practice faith. It's a transvaluation of value. Yes, they gave them a Bible. Indeed, they gave them something from the colonial standpoint. Yes, that happened. But do not discredit their genius in being able to extract the propaganda out of the story and find connection to the story to reframe their own story. And that's what happens there in that text. They turn it on, on its head. Thank you. Um, if we can do a real like uh, lightning round <laughs> on this last question, um, how should the topics that we've discussed so far today inform the way contemporary black Christians look at slavery passages in the Bible? And then we'll move to the Q&A. So real quick, maybe like a minute or so each, minute, minute and a half. How should the topics we've discussed today inform the way contemporary black Christians look at I, slavery? I text? think it should inform how we teach it how we preach it, and going starting with the little kids, how we when, we, when we use the word slave in our church or when we teach it in the seminary, we need to stop and explain what that means. And from what we talked about today, I think we have a, at least something that you can take with you to explain what that means so that we can move in a different direction with that. You know, I think understanding, you know, the way that we read the text, um, understanding that, you know, although there, you know, this is very complex, very, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, getting into the weeds, but that there, there's a way to understand the, the, the conditions that we're in, knowing that, um, knowing that there is a, Especially the way Paul does it, turning turning the systems upside down and um, reminding those that are in power that they 
are subject to even a greater authority. And I think that's a good way of reminding, reminding us. Two things, one, that God is a God of liberation. And so that, and well, maybe three, God is a God of liberation and he meets us, he meets us in our context. Now, and as such, that God who is sovereign is sovereign over our context. And then even can take symbols of oppression and use it for his glory. The staff in Egypt was a stat, was an issue of, was a, was a token of dominance that some of the, the kings in the iconography held. And so it was people of, of status in, uh, Egypt, uh, in Egyptian imagery and stories maintained. And so then God takes the image of a staff, puts it in the hands of shepherds, and then these shepherds then take this staff and then use it as a, 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 a means of liberation. Then you turn to the New Testament, the cross at Calvary, crucifixion, something of degradation, slavery, and then God takes those things that are of low value and turns it on his head as the ultimate means of love and revelation of his interaction with humanity. I'll build on that last thought. Um, when Jesus is placed on Calvary, on the cross, crucifixion is known as, in the ancient world, a slave's death. The fact that Jesus has a slave's death and the fact that he's wounded indicates that the moment that Jesus is wounded, he takes upon a polemic, and that polemic is this, is that by the fact that God has been wounded and the fact that his so-called uh, oppressors have, if you will, gotten the upper hand, Jesus says, I will take justice and make it in a way that it doesn't look like the Roman emperor. And indeed, what he does is this. Through his wounds, he demonstrates I'm on the side of the oppressed. I'm the, on the side of those who are being misused. I'm on the side of those. And this, this is not liberation theology. This is Bible. I'm on the side of those who are, have the courage to participate in a death like mine. So what's my point? As people of faith, African-Americans or otherwise, it's our responsibility. If we're going to change this world, if we're going to pull anything from slavery in the Bible and have some kind of meaning in our churches, in our schools we teach, the jobs we have, we have to have the courage to not be afraid for slavery to have a positive connotation because that's what Paul does. He uses the word slave and it becomes a positive meaning in a negative system because Jesus is tied to it. If you tie Jesus to it, I guarantee you, you'll implode any system from the inside out. Thank you. So now we'll move to the, uh, the Q&A time. And, uh, okay, so the first one we have here. So God brings us on earth to be a slave to either man, God, and greater Jesus. How do you make that sit right with the black American while trying to encourage their faith? You know, I mean, I think the question begs a deeper question of entitlement. What are we entitled? What are we owed? Uh, um, 
you, you know, when you think of the Christian faith, you think of Christian theology, we are here because God chose us to be here for God's purpose, for God's will, for God's plan. And what is that? And although, because, you know, we all have different stations in life, but I think that's the heart of the question that we all have to wrestle with. What are we here for? And then we ask questions of, is there something that we're owed? Is there something that's due us? Or is there, is, is there something that we are entitled to? And I think that's something to wrestle with as we're, you know, we all have to wrestle with. Um, and I, I think that may be something deeper. So that's kind of maybe the, to, to, to deepen the question, if you will. Can you repeat that question again? Sure. Uh, so God brings us on earth to be a slave to, to either man, God, and greater, Jesus. How do you make that sit right with the black American while trying to encourage their faith? I, I think we have to re remind people that God is the liberator of us where, at whatever station you're at. But people are evil, too. So mm -hmm. we, can't, you, we, have to be, we have to be honest about this. Like, this how slavery was in the Old Testament, how slavery, slavery is in, was in the New Testament, even today, and how people are dealing with it. People are evil. So even though God says, okay, the slave needs to come out in, in the Old Testament and have some resources and all that, you have Israelites still trying to enslave other Israelites. You have uh, people kidnapping and enslaving people. So people are in, intrinsically evil. And so everyone needs God. So I would say that we, we, are, we are servants of God. We are slaves of God. But to understand what that means is that we can't let that come from how people have treated us. We have to look at what the scripture says concerning us. Because the scripture gives us a different picture. But we can't dismiss the fact that slavery is evil, people are evil, and they will try to impose uh, a status or a way of life on us that God never intended. So we have to make sure that we are not mixing those up. Yeah, I think perhaps the conversation, uh, the first segment about trauma is at play. Uh, there are some things we just won't be able to extract. Uh, there are some things that we will have to contend with. But I think uh, Galatians 3.28 perhaps gives us a way out. Um, well, there's no more slave or free, Jew or Greek, right? Male or female. Uh, the whole point of it, Paul argues is, and I take this from a German philosopher, is that it seeks for us to be at the zero degree of belonging. It's possible for all of us to be in this room, to be enslaved to God, but yet at the same time have difference. I think the challenge becomes when we want to be in the room with an erasure of difference. We have to be able to practice diversity without erasing who we are. And I think that in and of itself allows us to maintain our connections to Africa. It allows others to connect to their connections to Asia or Europe. I think slavery as a whole we are enslaved to God and we cannot disrupt that. That's just what it is. That's how he starts the narrative. That's how the motif begins. God goes into Egypt, he rescues, and they are in complete servitude to him. I think that's the challenge. There's so much now that we are in servitude to that it's difficult to see the power and the positive valuation of being in service to God. I think of almost Genesis chapter one and combined Westminster Confession, what's the chief end of man? And that's to, to worship God and serve him forever. And I think sometimes with all of the stuff of Western culture, um, in terms of our values and 
by stuff, the pathology that's put on us, sometimes that gets, that gets askewed, particularly when we're dealing, we're dealing with trauma. There's another question from the audience. Uh, what's your exegetical treatment of Hagar, uh, of the Hagar narrative as slave? Another softball. You know, I deal with this, and I, I get in all kinds of trouble. I get in lots and lots and lots of trouble. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I, I look at that. Um, you know, I look at the, the, the Sarai, uh, Abram, Hagar triangle, love triangle. Um, and when, when Hagar is just seriously mistreated, I mean, she is of no fault of her own. I think the way that we read the text is we vilify her. Why? I think that we have to question that. What makes her a villain? I don't think the text would suggest that she's a villain. Um, but I do think that what can be troubling is when the angel of the Lord comes to her after she's dealt harshly by Sarai, is to return and submit to your mistress. Now, this is probably very not not very popular, but and maybe it, it may be a little. I don't know if it's a little. I don't know if it's conjecture in a sense, but you have this woman of color who is in the desert with no provisions. Um, she's going to die, but she's with child. So, to what degree is the instruction of of the angel of the Lord to tell her to submit and return a kind of broadly looking out for her her life? for provisions for her, for um, you know, this, this, this single black mother who is no provisions. And, and to, so, so there's, there's that, but she's gonna be submitting to a bad situation. So it's, it's kind of six and one, one, you know, five, you know, what, six and 12, something like that. Um, so, which is, which is similar to kind of our lives, right? The jobs that we work as bad as we are treated in certain situations, but it's yet providing for us, paying for our bills, helping us to take care of our children. So it's kind of a, the, an and and that, you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's, it's sticky, but that's, I get into lots of trouble, but it, you know, we have lots of fun getting in trouble, you know, trying to can figure I, that can out. Can I add something? Um, I say keep reading the Hagar story, because you keep reading Hagar's story and there will be a time where she will, she'll have to go. They, they send her out. And God knows I'm not a fan of Abraham at that moment because he sends her out without provisions. He sends her out to die because there's no way she can make it. But the Lord hears the cry of the child, Syak. The child cries out. And God is merciful to people who are not a part of the covenant because he envisions his covenant as greater than what we see at that moment. And so I say, keep reading Hagar's story because it doesn't stop there. It's a harsh moment, right? But so there was a harsh moment with Joseph's story. And there's harsh moments in our story. But if we stop reading the story at the moment as a harsh moment, we won't get to the end where God brings us out on the other side. So I say, keep reading the story. And blesses her, and blesses her offspring, and they become a large number as well. Mm -hmm. So it's sustaining, but also fruitfulness in the midst of that. Okay, here's a question uh, that looks at uh, not just uh, slavery in the Bible, but, but takes this idea of slavery and then brings it to some of our modern discussions. Uh, can you address why modern discussions of slavery and justice have become associated with socialism, Marxism, and leftism? 
I'll take, I'll do just one piece and y'all do the you hear rest. You people clamoring, please, up there. So. Every time when I, when I every, any class I teach, I always at some point say that I am a direct descendant of Isaac Garner, my great-great-great-grandfather who was sold for $300 to a family, to the John Garner family in South Carolina. And then I begin to teach whatever I'm teaching. Um, I'm, if people would like to dismiss our history and, and make us feel bad about talking about things, so they label them in order to get us to stop talking about them. And I would say on just a very short note that you have to keep talking about them even if they mislabel them. You have to put your own label on it, speak it, and they can say whatever they want. The word is the word, we have been through what we've been through, and you can't try to mislabel it to make me afraid to talk about it. You call it Marxist all you want. Slavery is evil, and I'm gonna talk about it, and I'm gonna talk about reparations and justification and all of that. That comes up when we talk about, uh, if you're in an evangelical space, critical race theory. And so they'll call it, they'll call it Marxist, communist, and never deal with the merits of what the issue are. Put it aside then, let's talk about injustice. Let's talk about uh, sin. Let's talk about the pathology of systemic racism. Let's talk about the mass incarceration of people of color. Okay, if you, if you, don't, if you don't like CRT, we can put that aside, but let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Because evangelicals normally with their individualistic perception and interpretation of scripture don't deal with, I think, what's a major part of the Old and New Testament, and that's the impact of groups and how groups impact one another. Even when you immediately go to the Genesis story, the, the word in Hebrew, Adam, is singular for Adam, but also it's collective for humanity. So I think just built into the language is a larger worldview that talks about the importance, not only of the individual, but the importance of the collective. I think there's one thing that this kind of um, context and you know the kind of world in which we're living in, it's kind of hyper-racial, everything like that, is that, I'm to the point now, and maybe I've just gotten older, I'm not interested or you know, want to even entertain, somebody else wants to define me, that's on you. I'm not interested in that. So as long as I know I belong to God, and as long as my family know that, as long as I know who I am, it doesn't matter who you think I am. Okay, here's another question uh, from the audience. Even though chattel slavery is different from slavery mentioned in the Bible, how can we reconcile that an all-knowing God would not have been aware that it would, be, that it would have evolved into a more barbaric practice? I think it's the issue of theodicy. And how can you have evil in the presence of a God that's good? But maybe what the beauty of the biblical story and the narrative is it, it shows to us the God who engages brokenness and turns it around for his glory. And that ultimately, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. So that we walk around, and we can walk around with our scars, but also there's a note of hope and triumph because ultimately, ultimately God has the last word. And maybe one of the experiences that many of us experience is that a lot of times God does things in our lives in the storm 
that he doesn't do when the weather is fair. I don't like it like that. I don't want to hang out in the storm all of the time. But I can look back at the storms of my life and see how God has done something matchless. He's drawn me closer. He's created a sense of humility. And he's, he, he's made me trust him even that much more, that if he could bring me out of this, then surely he can keep me when times are good. I think the cross becomes our ethic of what we see Jesus Christ do. Uh, and what happens to him on the cross becomes what we live by. Uh, I might get in trouble, but I'll say it anyway, that the trauma that happens on Calvary is something that's representative of the Christian life. We want to we wanna sanitize experience to engage God without having to worry about all the complexities of what that faith message brings. I'm gonna say a little different. We wanna shout, praise, receive, be blessed, but we don't want to deal with the difficulty that comes with experiencing and understanding what those things really mean. I think the challenge is that, yeah, I suspect I'll get in trouble, that the ethic that I see happening from Calvary is this, that trauma is what helps to transition us to understanding what transformation looks like. It's through trauma. If Christ is our ethic, if the Calvary is something that we look at it without an, uh, an atonement theology, of course, we're not doing that. You know, of course, Pentecost is important without question. But if we look at Christ on the cross, then we have to say that perhaps maybe as a leader in the room, I'll say this and I'll let it go, that a leader or a follower of Christ that is not bleeding is a leader or follower of Christ that's not leading. It's through that sacrifice and pain that brings us into an understanding of who God is. Regardless of what social systems exist, regardless of the pain of oppression and the imposition of identity, it really comes down to the fact, are you willing to accept that through your trauma, it helps to turn you to a moment to recycle pain in order to see what God wants you to imagine is your sense of promise. Can, can, I, can I just say something? Because you brought up trauma quite a bit, and I want to just say this. I want to just recommend this, this great book. I, it has impacted my life. It's not theological to the, to, the, to the setting. It's not theological, but it's a great book. It's a book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Joy. I think it's Joy or Joyce DeGruy, DeGru, right? Joy. Joy. I love the book. I've heard her speak. I'm a part of her little fan club, basically. But she talks about how the, just the history of trauma and, you know, and how the impact of slavery and how it really has shaped African-Americans. And I don't, and yes, I have great hope through trauma, but I, I do want to just take a moment, because we had a trauma thing earlier, to just say, listen, we have as a community suffered trauma, and we don't want to keep reproducing trauma. We, you know, some of us, get victory and we all right, but some of us, we have a high rate of suicide, high rate of depression, high rate of mental illness, and we need to really sort of deal with that some, of, some people are not recovering well in, in, the, in the midst of trauma. You know, um, to kind of piggyback, and I think there's a biblical illustration of this notion, if you don't bleed, you can't lead. The Good Samaritan, uh, where it talks about the man who was on the road um, going down uh, down the Jericho Road. And 
talks about that he was beaten, left half dead. But then the Good Samaritan, after the Levi and the priests walked on the other side, those who were called to protect and serve walked on the other side. Um, the the guy, the, the Good Samaritan, he it, the, the text says that he he bandages his wound, and the Greek word for wound is traumata. He bandaged his trauma. He put the man on his own mode of transportation. He took him down to an end. He stopped what he was doing to deal with the man's trauma, which took time, which took resources. And he paid, he, he, he paid the innkeeper to keep the man and said, whatever is left over, I will pay. So trauma is, if you don't bleed, you can't lead. But the idea that it takes time to deal with, and that's a ministry. And I think that's a beautiful illustration that the Good Samaritan offers us this notion of trauma, dealing with others' wounds. That, that, that's good. I'm, I just got real quick. It's your fault because you brought it to me. Is before he gets to that point to help, the word in that passage you note is splonknitsomai. What that means is there was a gut reaction that when he saw him, he could not help but help. And at some stage, there must be a my in us, a gut reaction that says, I got to do something. All right, we have about seven minutes left. I'm going to try to squeeze in uh, two questions. <laughs> try, try to squeeze in two questions. Uh, it seems like people nowadays are more harsh. Oh, excuse me, let me actually go to this one. Why do you think God liberated Israel and emphasized the importance of not treating Egyptians the way they were treated, yet allows them to enslave foreigners. Anybody want to go? The Lord wants to remind, first the Lord wants to remind Israel that their very existence is dependent upon him. That they were, they were slaves and they only come out of it because of Christ, because of God's work, Right. The other part is during war, there will be people, you will have people who will be captured. So what do you do with those people? Do you just send them back to their own land so they can rebuild and come back after you, that sort of idea? So some, some part of this is, has to do with warfare and capturing the land that God wants the Israelites to capture, but not to expand beyond that. So, the, so a part of this is that we have to understand that the Israelites have a set amount of land that they can that they are due, and they can't, and David gets in trouble for this, they can't go beyond that. And so it, it's, it's not so much of, oh, God wants to uh, sort of enslave other people, and you know he has this bad view of other people, because he tells them how he, they must treat that foreigner as well. So there's this, this way you treat the one that you're, you're permitted to enslave. So you cannot treat them as chattel slavery. But I think part of that has to do with warfare, and that there will be times where they will have other people, and how do you deal with them? Do, do you kill them all? Do, do, you, do, is, do you enslave them? How do you handle that situation? So I think part of it deals with that. Okay, here's, uh, here's a, very <laughs> a very unique one. Um, in the ancient Near East, how does slavery in a patriarchal society affect abuse of women? <laughs> I'm the woman. I gotta yeah, touch you. Gotta, you gotta have that one. <laughs> because men are abused as well, right? So, so 
Do you want me to touch it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> so read the question again. Sure. Uh, in the ancient Near East, how does slavery in a patriarchal society affect the abuse of women? Yeah, so there are, there are also rules about how you treat women. You know, one of, the, one of the best, I love the passage in Exodus 21. I, I love that passage because if that husband doesn't treat her well, she can go. And that's like so exciting to me. <laughs> this, I'm sorry, but you know, there, there is, and I mean, that's Old Testament that you, that's not new, that's Old Testament that there is this, so I think when it comes to um, slavery, or I think when it comes to, we have to remember concerning the Bible, God does not want his people to be beaten up other people and he don't want his people to be beaten up. That's not, his, that's not his plan. So when we deal with people who are dealing with domestic abuse, I think churches have to take a very measured approach. Do I want to say, oh, you know, I used to work as a social worker, so you, you, you develop a safety plan. That's one of the things you do, because the woman might want to stay. You develop a safety plan, but if she wants to go, then you help her towards going. But I do think the Bible does provide uh, guidance to us that you are not to be beaten up and abused, God has something better for you. You are made in the image of God, and so you should be treated fairly. You, you know, and, and this is kind of going back to the Hagar story. When I look at the, the narrative, Genesis 16 and Genesis 21 around Hagar, um, Abram does everything the women tell him to do. But the angel of the Lord only speaks to Hagar. Ouch. Mm. <laughs> I, I think that's powerful, and I could be wrong, and of course my Old Testament professors here will help guide me after this segment. Um, but I'm, what comes to my mind is the moment that Hagar sees Ishmael and Isaac playing together, or rather Sarah sees Ishmael and Isaac playing together and forces Hagar out. Um, and. I could be just getting a shameless plug to preach here, I guess. But there's always a danger when impatience is playing with promise. When Ishmael and Isaac are before Sarah, I imagine, if I can use my spiritual imagination in this context, that she is wondering what in the world have I done? So I see perhaps even the role of women in which I may not have heard expressed, perhaps it does exist, is the conflict between women in that patriarchal context and her courage to tell her to get out, even though that was that man's son. There's a danger when patience, impatience plays with the promise. I appreciate these preaching nuggets because Sunday's coming up. <laughs> Carol Myers has an article, is uh, the ancient, is ancient Israel patriarchal? Uh, and she makes an argument that it's, it's a heterarchy in that there's too much engagement with the larger culture. You have three and four generations together living like a Beitav. And she's, she argues that most of the complex day-to-day -day work is done by women. So the man is clearly doing the work, but clearly as well, 
there is a predominance and importance of women all throughout scripture. So she makes the argument that just to call ancient Near East patriarchal is a, is a, is a misexamination. It's not a close enough reading of the complexity of the ancient Near East. Thank you. So we have about 30 seconds left. And if you all could just name maybe a, a resource or two that has helped you to think through this subject, um, that'd be very helpful to the audience. I'll, I'll go back to, because uh, many people name commentaries. I, I push towards um, getting that post-traumatic slave syndrome book. I think that brings the discussion to another level. And um, so that's, that's by uh, Joy DeGruy. I think, or I, I might be mis, mis saying the name, but um, I would suggest that. You know, I think what's been informative to me, and it's, it's interesting, Mark Knoll, Civil War as a Theological Crisis, his essential thesis is that as much as the Civil War and slavery was about economics and a whole host of other things, at issue was who controlled the meaning of the Bible in pulpits across America. That's his thesis. Civil War is a theological crisis and the issue of slavery and who controls the meaning of the Bible in pulpits across America. There's an interesting read that gives a positive identity for a life of a slave in the ancient world. Uh, name of the book is uh, Paul and the Rise of the Slave, uh, the Resurrection of the Death uh, and the Press in the Ancient World. Um, author K. Edwin Bryant. Well, I would think of, of two. Um, uh, Esau McCauley's uh, Reading While Black, uh, many of us have it already, and it's a, it's a classic, but also who couldn't be here, Lisa, Bo uh, Lisa Bowen's um, you know, African-American readings of Paul, I think is insightful in terms of just, we see how the text has been misappropriated, but also appropriated. Thank you so much. Please give it up for our esteemed panel. What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I'm so excited to come to you to talk about Courageous Conversations 2022. That's right, we're at it again for another year. The theme this year is the scholar and the skeptic. We're back in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church with seven amazing conversations. Conversations like, is there a God? Should we trust the Bible? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Does Christianity oppress women? Is Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Should we be spiritual or religious? Is Christianity bad for our mental health? We want to give you a blueprint on how to have courageous conversations with gentleness and respect. Remember, we sold out last time, so make sure you register early and get your ticket now. If you can't join us in person, you have the virtual option as well, but don't miss this year. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged 
in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.